All right, welcome to the pod, you magnificent accursed. David Hurley here with the best goddamn political panel there is. Jordan Leichnitz, Corey Tonight, Scott Reed. Gather around the kitchen table, you poly nerds. This week we're doling out generous helpings of shite for each party. We'll start with Trudeau's selective pausing of the carbon tax for home heating oil and the political fallout that's created. For our cursed clipping, we head west. It's Rick Bell's piece in the Calgary Sun, which goes at Premier Smith for not providing any real information on her Alberta pension plan. And then we have a full-on NDP meltdown in Ontario in the wake of Sarah Jamma's removal from caucus, accusations that Merritt Stiles is out of touch with the one million Muslims in the province and calls for her immediate resignation. So yeah, it's a big, bad, mucky and disgusting week. But then just to make it all a little bit better, the dulcet tones of Gordon Pinsent as he calls for our hey yous. Scott, Jordan, Corey, what are you wearing for Halloween? Uh, already Corey, worn. I, I've already, already seen it. Already yeah. seen it. You were Ken. You I were was, Ken. I wasn't just Ken. I was Sugar Daddy Ken. And Sugar. I, got a, I got a very special green 70s-ish blazer made for it, which, uh, which was fantastic. Except nobody knew who I was unless I was standing next to Barbie. Nicole's dad. I think they just that's the nature of Ken. That's the nature of being Ken. You're just letting it all hang out, you know? That or there was there were Barbie looks spectacular. There. Yeah. Uh well that's that goes without saying. I hmm. uh yeah. I'm I I was I was the uh, second fiddle arm candy. That's that's how that worked. But uh but yeah, it was fun. Yeah, it was Scott, a, you... a dr- dress up party at the ROM. Scott, are you going as Robin again this year? Uh, no, you're wrong about that, David. Please <laughs> cons- consult what was referred to as the Who's Who DC Encyclopedia of Superheroes. I uh, I actually bought a full body flash outfit a number of years ago. I wear it every year on Halloween. I have uh, I've often worn it on other days throughout the year, and um, and I have a very specific. Uh, running flash noise that I make that signals to everyone around me that I'm breaking. You're going faster barriers. than the speed well, of light. Yeah. Well, as, as, as long as you're not wearing it in the bedroom, I guess. Uh. <laughs> well, you have to bring Ken and Barbie over to find out the answer to that question, Bucko. <laughs> all right, let's bring this back to reality. <laughs> what, are, what, are, what are the Munchkins wearing for Halloween? Jordan. Ah, so my oldest uh, is going to be a witch, which is great. That's act. That's so classic that actually I was able to rummage deep into the boxes in the basement and find the witch costume that my mother sewed me when I was six years old. Oh, so wow. we're done and dusted, oh, and, wow. and he's happy, and it's great. And um, my two-year-old is obsessed with the moon, so she's she's going to be a moon. And actually, that's what I have to do after this call is I have to finish making her little moon costume. Aww. So, oh, crafts. Uh, nice. Home crafts. And then, of course, I, uh, as a good new Democrat, will be Robin Hood. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> that, that tracks perfectly. My, that tracks perfectly. My, I had to explain to my 10-year-old. We'll be at your door at 5 o'clock, Corey. <laughs> <laughs> my 10-year-old son number four is dressed as murder clown, and I had to explain to him, and it has this elaborate, and I would say quite frightening, uh, hood mask thing. And the school has a policy that you cannot wear a mask to school. You can wear your costume. You can't wear a mask. You can't conceal your face. And I was trying to explain this to son number four. And he just got out of the vehicle holding his mask and muttering, fucking bullshit, TDSB <laughs> under his <laughs> But but the irony after after like two years of forcing kids to wear masks who didn't want them, now now if it's for fun, fuck that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Heads I win, tails you lose, kid. I'm, I'm going as a pandemic victim. I'm going to wear a mask anyway. Fuck that. Uh, All right, that kids. would be traditional for your party, Corey. <laughs> Let's start. Let's start where we must start. This week, Trudeau blinks on the carbon tax. Everybody listening knows that last week, under tremendous political pressure from Atlantic Canada, Trudeau made some changes to the carbon tax. Larger rural refund, more money to buy heat pumps if you're using home heating oil to heat your home, and a suspension of the carbon tax on home heating oil for three years. So there's just no way this is a one-off because it's totally about Atlantic Canada. And it, once you make one uh, exemption, you can't justify not making others. So 
this is a string that is being pulled. Um, they're going to have to nationalize this uh, change in some way. Scott, what do you think of their move, and what do you think is coming next? So, I was uh, I was uh, out of Canada for the weekend at a hockey tournament in Lake Placid. So I wasn't on question period this weekend with uh, my pal Corey here, but I know you took my place, David, and they dedicated an online story to your comments. You made news. And so rather than respond to the policy, I'm going to respond to your response to the policy because <laughs> I don't agree with you. Uh, okay, I, well, I, then you should I, show up for your fucking show. Well, you know, <laughs> they don't make... They don't, I don't... Like, I'm not like you. I don't, like, go on there going, hey, what's the most extraordinary thing I can say to make a fucking headline, you know? I just go there and try to tell the truth. But I guess we're different that way. Um, no, I, um, I... I... I really question... Um, if, if the core of your assertion is they're about to... They, ha they must nationalize this policy... And it's all orchestrated at gradually uh, taking the carbon tax off the table as as a as a point of division and 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 political um, contest for the next election. I'm not sure you're, that's the outcome that you're going to get, and and I think it remains to be seen that they are actually even fully committed to that project. So I think that's going to be something we need to watch for. And to me, it's kind of like the difference between. Oh, I'm going to get it. The question is whether they offer it or whether it's dragged out of them. Right. So that's but this what is I'm going to be extended to natural gas before the well, next election. It has to be right. So that's where I'm at. So like, I'm wondering, like, as a political project, is this a walkout or a backout? And I think there's a big difference, right? A walkout where you say, listen, we've sat around the table, we've talked it over. And no matter how, and we've, we ourselves have edged toward this. We've convinced ourselves over the last number of weeks that this was a policy that was too fundamental to the liberal identity and to the Trudeau political agenda, and it can't be reversed, to getting ourselves to the point where, well, what the fuck? I guess you know, they got it, right? And so did they come to the conclusion that they had to reverse this policy? And having done that, do they then decide, now the options are we can um, create a series of offsets, demographic lines, geographic lines, we'll sort of see and we'll play with different policy things and try to preserve our consensus around this and our coalition around this. So we'll say that we remain dedicated to it, but we'll try to blunt the effects of it in a series of announcements and all that kind of stuff. Or should we just walk out? That's the back out. Or do we walk <clears throat> out and say, listen, we got it wrong. We're going to pause this thing for three, four years, remain committed to the idea, but we can implement it right now. And this kind of causes kind of economic dislocation and uncertainty. And I'm not even sure they've done the back out. Like, I'm not even sure that's what they're up to. Clearly. Uh, when you say that, that sounds yeah. like a horrible day. That sounds like a horrible day, right? Do you know how bad election day is going to be? Well, Exactly. Worse. So when I look at it and I go, like, you're going to end up in a situation where if you've made this decision, do you say, okay, well, I'm going to I'm gonna do a bunch of offsets. I'll do for home heating oil. Let's start in Atlantic Canada. That's where we got burned the most. So now we're trying to offset it. So now we're bearing all, but we're not, not going to say that we've turned tail on the carbon tax. So we will remain vulnerable to all those that say, the carbon tax is a fucking problem, man. But we'll say, well, we tried to mitigate its impact with you here. Then you're going to get dragged out. BC came out swinging, right? Yeah. And Ford is going to, you know, so then there's going to be, okay, what about natural gas? What about other things? And then there's going to be a, a cascade of policy demands to try to undo the thing in a whole variety of ways. Gasoline. Do, you can't, do what, get, what, what's exactly. wrong with gasoline? So then do they get credit for any of that? I'm not sure they're going to get credit for any of it. So I heard what you're saying, David, like the walkout has a lot of political pain where you say, listen, we're just hitting pause and people go, well, you're just cynical and that's just pure political crassness. But I don't know that the backout works any better. I think it could work worse because then I think under duress, you look like you're doing it. And I don't know that it eliminates it as an issue. I don't think it does eliminate it as an issue. I think you could end up in the worst of both worlds where you're paying a fuckload more for this policy because you're paying for the original policy, plus you're paying for the reparations to the policy. And you end up with people saying that you still bear the policy. And so you're vulnerable to that. But 
you know, you haven't earned back any of the votes for the reversal. So I, I'm, I'm worried that's the situation. So when you say, well, they are ta- they're taking it off the table by nationalizing, that's clearly where this is going. They may end up nationalizing it either by design or drag there, but I'm not sure it's going to neutralize this issue or their vulnerability on it. So I think it's, I think this is the beginning of a big political hornet's nest. I'm not sure they're going to do it well, but by the way, you've just proved that you were superfluous to question period yesterday because that's Corey's position, um, yes. which I'll let, which I'll let him articulate. I didn't get a chance to watch it because I was on a bus for six and a half hours. Coming back, yeah, like it's, it's all kinds. It's all kinds of bad for them. It's all kinds of bad for them. Like I think it's bad from uh, in terms of undermining the argument that they've been making for for years now around the policy itself. Uh, I think that that uh, you know they they've admitted some of the flaws that. I dare say I and you guys have, have pointed out repeatedly on this on this show that you know the challenge with the carbon tax is there aren't viable alternatives for a lot of people in a lot of places. And so if it's about trying to incent behavior, there's got to be an alternative. Have behavior. they though, Corey? Uh, have they admitted be- any of that? Haven't they, they just did. implemented they, a they policy did. and tried to pretend that it's unrelated to the pre-existing condition? Well, they they did. In but like I'm giving you insulin, but I'm not saying you've got diabetes. <laughs> yeah, like it, they they are certainly tipping their hat to it, and they reference that uh, Trudeau himself referenced that for a lot of people in a lot of parts of the country, they don't have a viable alternative right now, and so they're being more adversely impacted. Uh, except then, his solution only helped a, a, a handful of people in one region, which is uh, you know pretty unfair and pretty problematic. It, it puts additional pressure on on pre-existing national unity fault lines in a way that I think is is unhealthy for the country in the long term. And uh, I think it's unsustainable. I think they're, you know this was driven from intense pressure from their Atlantic caucus. And I think they're now going to face intense pressure uh, from uh, other parts of their caucus, be it their BC caucus, be it their Ontario caucus. Like it's always important to remember one out of every two seats in that government comes from Ontario. And Right now, they've gotten the fuzzy end of the lollipop on just about every issue, including now this one. So uh, it, it's it's really difficult to to see how they don't get get forced into it, which is you know I think what what we're all kind of agreeing on here. Uh, but yeah, it, 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 I just don't see it as credible for something, whether it's a walkout or a backout that Trudeau can sell. I that's why I keep coming back to a leadership change is probably of the list of of not great solutions for the Liberal Party right now, the one that's starting to look the best. Because to sell that back out or walk out, you got to have somebody uh, in charge where people think that that's credible. And and I just don't think this looks credible to, to anyone. It looks like a promise to be, re, you know, that this policy be, will be reinstated at the first available opportunity. And it's being done with such reluctance. And uh, that... Uh, it's almost a promise that it's going to come back, you know, it, uh, right away. And so if you don't like it, you know, you're going to, you're still not going to like the Liberal Party. Just about six weeks ago in this space, we spent some time looking at our labor productivity measures from StatsCan. I don't want to repeat them detail for detail, so let me just get to the crux of it. We are slumping. Slumping like my Rough Riders are slumping. In more specific and less watermelon head football terms, Canada is currently ranked last of all the OECD countries in GDP per capita growth and is projected to continue to be last until 2060. Within those slumping overall productivity numbers, however, a not insignificant glimmer of hope. The telecommunications industry has been one of our leading drivers of economic growth, more than doubling the growth rate of all industries. Building on that, there's fresh research out from the Center for the Study of Living Standards, looking at the impact of high-speed internet on productivity. It reveals that 20% of Canada's overall productivity growth from 2009 to 2019 can be traced directly back to the investments we've made in broadband services. And the report makes it very clear. If we want to continue to spur growth and productivity and improve on the last placeness of our GDP numbers, We need to expand access to high-speed connectivity right across this country. What that's going to take is twofold, a less uncertain regulatory environment and government policy that stimulates more private sector investment in our underserved communities. 
And in the off chance you were feeling that this was all somehow not relevant to our presenting sponsor, TELUS, perish that thought, hurly-burlyites. The fact is, TELUS has been leading the investment charge for years now, pouring $240 billion into continuous innovation and improvement since 2000. Investments that have helped TELUS grow to 100,000 gainfully employed Canadians and contribute 1.2% to our GDP. TELUS's goal here? Only this. Under their own lens of social purpose, they want to invest more, contribute more, help grow the Canadian economy more. You know, Jordan, I, I want to hear your take on all this, but I want to throw something additional into the mix, which is I saw something in that announcement that we haven't talked about that looked to me like it could be an interesting new angle that they take on this, and that is essentially making the heat pumps free for people in Atlanta, Canada, yeah. or people that are on home heating oil at presumably wherever they are, um, make, making uh, heat pumps essentially free. This, this, is a, this is a more Biden than Trudeau approach to climate. This is the, I'm taking the sacrifice out of it. I'm just giving you things. And this is frankly what you have to do politically yes, on climate. Absolutely, yeah. Right? Yeah. So I'm just wondering if that's the first nugget of what might be a shift in their approach. I mean, maybe, hopefully, because I think when Corey makes the point that the part of the reason that the carbon tax is so painful people for people, particularly in rural areas, is because of the lack of other viable options. This type of a policy is is actually how you get at that. But I think we've seen, you know, over the past 15, 20 years, there's been various iterations of different uh, forms of that policy under the conservatives, under the liberals, around efficiency, home retrofits, things like that. They are incredibly popular, they are incredibly effective, and they are incredibly expensive. And so they tend not to last very long if they are a generous and broad-based program that actually reaches a lot of people. Uh, it gets pretty pricey pretty quickly. So I think that when they were doing an announcement like this, especially with the idea that the carbon tax might come back at some point, politically, you had to offer people some way off that treadmill. And so that would be this type of a retrofit. Uh, but again, like it's it's very targeted and small. So I think we'll have to wait and see if that's that type of support is something that they're willing to roll out all across the country. But since everyone's shitting on the liberals, I'm going to uncharacteristically, I'm going to say one nice thing about that. Uh, because I think that this is the first fucking sign of life. I think this is required. I think this is a legal requirement under the conference right. and supply yeah. agreement. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Katie, Katie, I want you to tick the box. Okay. This is a sign of life, guys, because this is the first time since they've started their controlled descent into terrain in the polls that they have actually changed a meaningful thing they're doing, okay? So now, are they still fucked on this? I think yes, but I think we, we should also acknowledge that there is something that is fundamentally shifted in order for this to be possible in Well, Scott thought he me. heard tapping on the submarine pipes uh, a few <laughs> yeah, weeks ago. Right? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So there's a little, little signal from below. And, you know, and I, and I think also, you know, not to overly agree with Corey, but the, the fact that this came about because... People in Atlantic caucus broke caucus solidarity, voted against the party, publicly whined and made their case and complained in a way that was politically painful for their own team is very interesting and very instructive for Ontario Liberal MPs. And I think that as we've talked about before, at a certain point, people in Ontario will begin to wonder what is the purpose of having so many Ontario Liberal MPs if, if nothing is actually gained out of it. And of course, it doesn't help when you have other MPs out making the case that if the West would like shit, that they just need to elect more liberals. Like, guys, we know you're transactional, but try not to We had to too be busy a show to get try, to that today, but not, not because not I didn't be want so to. Obvious. Not because I didn't want to. Oh, my Lord. Yeah. You know, I'm a liberal, but I'm from Saskatchewan. Ooh. Talk about just getting the goddamn hair standing on the back of your neck. Yeah, anyway. it's like, like to quote Taylor Swift, like, maybe I'm the problem, it's me. Like, that. It's, it's really that. So, so I think... I think that that's a really interesting takeaway. And like, frankly, I'm, I'm far more interested about what's happening internally that precipitated this and that created space for this shift to happen. And the other thing I'm going to say is I'm going to maybe take a different tact than, than the three of you had. Uh, it, you know, I agree that, you know, once you start pulling at this thread, I do think we're going to see this expand. I think we're, I think it's inevitable. We're going to see this on natural gas in Ontario and elsewhere. But I, I was interested in the structure of this. I think, 
to me, it read like a soft launch. This was, this was a way to see what the pain points were on this. How bad really was the blowback on it? Um, what does this do to our voter coalition on both sides? Let's hear the complaining now. Let's see what it's like in a place where we have our most acute and immediate political problem. And let's and let's sit back and uh, take the temperature of this a week, two weeks later, and then assess. And so, oh Christ, me, Jordan, Jesus, Jesus, Jordan, you can't <laughs> you can't have them in a position where every subsequent change is seen to have been dragged out of them. Yeah, but that's exactly what happened. But that's exactly what happened. But that's what happened here. But the next ones, they've got to be seen to be doing them proactively rather than waiting until their Ontario caucus kicks the shit out of them on natural. I didn't say it was a good strategy, but I think that's what's happening. Oh, fuck. Can I can I point point out like on the policy basis, like where I think that this this is just so fucking stupid. Like there is a good, better, best. Uh, approach to climate mitigation. We don't have unlimited resources. Uh, Heat pumps don't work super fantastic, especially in the colder parts of this country, which can get very fucking cold in some places. And they're very expensive compared to something like a natural gas furnace. And maybe there is a better approach here, which is that we try to use the best uh, technology available uh, when we're looking at price point in the marketplace as well, uh, because you know there isn't unlimited resources here, and we have to deal with all kinds of climate mitigation uh, projects. There's all kinds of things that are important that require support from taxpayers in order to have happen. And you know, it just seems bizarre to me that we would uh, impose one particular technology uh, in in the case of home heating that has got some big question marks around it in terms of its broad-based uh, application uh, for the job at hand. Like, it is not the best technology yeah, out there, in my yeah. view. I'm not, a, I'm not oh, an what expert. What branding? But- a heat pump? Who doesn't want a heat pump? That sounds good. I'd like you one right under my bed. Right? I want a yeah. heat pump. That's- Jordan, I don't so think I you were finished. I don't think you were finished. Yeah, I was not dead. I have two other I mean, I did not Sorry, know. Sorry, I was Corey, so I'm gonna get shit for interrupting you because people <laughs> say the three of us are always interrupting you, and I don't I'm gonna get shit for it, but that was so outrageous what you said. Jesus. <laughs> You're offended by the very notion. Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, buckle uh, up because uh, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> So two, th- two more things years. I want to say, and I think I think one of them is is maybe also like a, a bit of a nerdy policy point. But what's really interesting in this too is that they elected to actually remove the tax rather than just boosting a rebate, and so they're going after the core structure of the policy, and they're and they're basically seeding the argument that this is an affordability thing, and and I think that that like that's a really interesting choice, right? Because if you just want to to cut people much larger checks and keep the integrity of the the carbon tax intact like you could have done that and i think it speaks to the challenge of how they structured this initially that people just don't it's not clicking with them that even though the vast majority of canadians receive more in terms of a rebate than they pay that like people are not feeling or seeing that so that's a major and the fact that that was unaddressed for so long as a political problem in the structure of the program i think is really uh hugely hugely problematic and the last thing i want to say is terry got a check the other day jordan terry got a check yeah terry got a check from the government that's it just an envelope with a check, and it she got say, a physical yeah, it check. It didn't like, say anything. There was a slip inside the envelope about something else, but it didn't describe what the check was for. The check was her rebate. Right? My twenty-year-old yeah. gets a check a week. Like it's like unbelievable. They pile up at my house. He's still using my address, and the government of Canada just sends him checks constantly. Like, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, no, but there, what I'm saying is, there's no identification yeah, to what it was. You never know, know. That, right? I know. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think that's an, an issue that's interesting because that's actually something that would have been eminently solvable within the structure of the, the this program like many years ago. And then the last thing I want to say is about the NDP. So it's really interesting. Uh, I think that there were a lot of expectations that the NDP would light their hair on fire about weakening the carbon tax. And in fact, they did the opposite and they stepped out and said, 
yep, we actually think that this should be removed on all home heating. So I think we, it's another really interesting example of, of some pretty strong discipline within the party federally in terms of going toe-to-toe with Polyev and the Conservatives in, in having that fight. And they're still out talking about lots of other strong climate mitigation measures, mm. but they were, they were not going to die on the hill of this policy, which I think is really smart. No, they're but united with everybody else on a 2.5 degree policy. But this walkout, <laughs> this walkout, backout thing obsesses me, right? Because they have structurally actually gone directly at the tax, but they haven't. Only the until the next election. Right. But so, uh, that's go, right. so going into the campaign, it's like elect us and your taxes are going back up. No, no, no. So obviously that can't be the platform. Clearly, but they've gone at it structurally. They've gone directly at the tax, but they haven't, from a communications perspective, they haven't acknowledged that really. And so what's going to happen then on this sort of back out problem that they're going to have, in my view, is they're going to get dragged, as you say, David, to all these various places. And then once we're done all the forms of home heating, people will say, well, what about all the other applications of the goddamn thing? And so we're like, what's... And when you do a walkout, you take a lot of pain and yes, you look crass, but at least you can construct an argument. And I, I really think like having been around this table a million times, I really imagine a meeting where people said, well, this is what we're going to do. But they didn't start with the problem of here's the polling on the carbon tax. Here's the box we're in. They start with the problem of here's what's happening with Atlantic caucus. And, and, and as an adjacent to that, they say, and look at our numbers there, right? They've gone through the shitter. So then they walk themselves in and then they're sitting around with the gibos of the world and they're going, no, 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 no. This does not mean that we're walking away from it. It does not. It does not mean that. And we're not going to do this next thing. I think they, because you believe your own bullshit. You tell yourself lies. You, you know, like you, you don't, you don't sort of say, my God, uh, uh, like, this whole thing that we've constructed doesn't work. It's a fucking disaster. We have to undo it. And one of the big, big, big problems with that, in my view, David, is that you don't get to your thing first. Like, it's you know, if if you take a long time and a lot of political pain to undo something, you, you also, correspondingly, delay doing something that others might like. So if you look at, you know, the two or three climate plans that Harper had, right? We had, you know, you had trade, then you had a carbon tax, then you had do nothing. Now, you know, the liberals have been saying, okay, well, let's do a carbon tax and all like, you know, and it's taken eight years or whatever it's been to finally actually have that thing hit the rails. There hasn't been a climate policy yet from the federal government of Canada in 20 years that's gotten implemented and worked. And, and so to me, the only place to go is the Biden bribe people, just pay them. I'm sorry, Corey, but I don't think price point's going to enter into the discussion. Now they're, I, I just, and how about those other cabinet ministers who are going to be told in the fiscal update, hey, you know what? We've become fiscal conservatives. Time to do it. But you're like, hey, wait a second. That's, so I get told no, me and my department for our programmatic desires at the cabinet table, but the. But you guys in the middle, you designed the fucking carbon tax. You're sending out the rebate checks. You're not taking the rebate checks back, but now you're paying on top of that to undo the policy. So it stacks and stacks for that. That's it's all green spending. But here, me, my program, I can't get sweet fuck all. Like it's going to create all kinds of tensions. And I just speaking of which, one last point before we leave this subject, Scott. Gilbo was not there. He sure as shit was not. He was not there. Was he he not there because he refused to be there or because they didn't want him there? Uh, Couldn't it be both? Both is not an impossible (laughs) answer. (laughs) Watch Gibo. Watch that space. Because if they they have to undo more, how can Gibo sustain his position? So you're, you're, you're unleashing a bunch of internal forces which move in, not slow motion, they move in medium motion. And that, that's, I like, I would rather do a walkout than a backout. Just would. So a friend of mine was in Montreal last weekend. The downtown core is all ripped up, construction sites everywhere, but no work happening. And he says he spent a good chunk of the visit sitting in gridlock, in the rain, like an hour to go three blocks gridlock. Toronto isn't much better. There's always some street blocked, choking up traffic in a city coping with explosive growth of population and cars. Well, our sponsor, CN, simply can't have that. Its trains cannot stop and wait for someone to replace tracks or bridges or fix tunnels on their own schedule. If trains stop, the economy nosedives. It's that simple. 
So CN is its own engineering and construction company. Thousands of employees working 24-7, 365 days a year. Its crews tend to 27,000 miles of track, 9,000 bridges, and more than 23,000 crossings. The railway spends about $1.5 billion a year on upkeep. CN engineering employees replace millions of railroad ties and hundreds of miles of rail. They repair bridges. They remove fouled and muddy ballast and replace it with clean rock. They maintain crucial signals and communication systems. And sometimes they have to work fast, real fast. Some might argue faster than you'd ever see a city construction crew move. A while back in BC, CN lost two spans of a railway bridge. CN's engineers had to haul two replacement spans in from Saskatchewan and replace them, and they did it in just a few days. Same story a few winters ago when rock and mudslides wrecked the Fraser Canyon Tunnel. In lousy weather, CN's engineers cleaned it out and opened it up five days later. Because, you know, they had to. Remember that old TV series, MacGyver? MacGyver was the guy who'd get into a jam, then use chewing gum and paper clips and a shoe or something to jury-rig some sort of mechanical solution. His name even became a verb. Hey, you MacGyvered that. Well, CN's engineers are a clever bunch of MacGyvers, all right, but with one big difference. They don't jury-rig anything. They work fast. Oh, yes, they do, but they work thorough. When they're done, tracks and bridges and tunnels are impeccable. Because trains have to move, but just as important, they have to move safely. All right, our clipping comes to us from Rick Bell in the Calgary Sun. And this is partially notable because Rick Bell is a pretty reliable UCP loyalist as a columnist. Um, but he's writing about the CPP. And he says, Premier Danielle Smith is asking Albertans to do something most individuals would not do if this was a business agreement in their personal lives. They want Albertans to say yes or no to an Alberta pension plan without seeing an actual deal in front of them. But people, many people, are asking for details. They want to see the numbers. Pardon them if they don't trust governments. <clears throat> Instead, they're shown a, a report of a bean counting crew. But there are deep thinkers who dispute the numbers, and even if other number crunching exercises surface, none will be the same as seeing a deal in black and white. I mean, really. Albertans will be asked to vote on what some big brains think will happen, but that is not the same as what will happen. Kathleen Petty, West, uh, West of Center's uh, podcast host, asked Jim Dinning about the province negotiating the exit from the CPP, showing Albertans the terms of the exit, and then, and then giving us the final say-so on whether to go ahead with it. Look, you make an interesting point, says Dinning. No kidding, says Rick Bell. Okay, Corey. This thing is looking a bit shambolic for such a major policy. Is Smith going to go the distance with this thing, or is she going to drop it? Um, I don't know. I don't know. I really don't. Um, uh, can I just quickly say something nice about two journalists? Because, you know, it just seems so rare as a conservative to get to do that. But Rick Bell has long been, you know, my favorite columnist in Western Canada. Well, one of my favorite. I like Lauren Gunter and a few other folks out there a lot, too. But... Uh, you know, great columnist, but is uh, is really being this sort of populist voice with his finger on the pulse of the kind of right of center uh, voter in in uh, Alberta for 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 decades now. Uh, the dinger and uh, Kathleen Petty, uh, also somebody who you know uh, represents maybe a bit broader, different audience, but in CBC world was you know was long being the person who's kind of brought in voice to. To From Alberta the West. and to Western Canada, yeah, yeah. and in, in, in a very good way. And so seeing the two of them interact uh, uh, on this storyline is, it, I think, really covers a broad spectrum of, uh, of folks out there. Uh, and it's, it's as clear as mud, you know, and listening to, on, uh, on Vashi's show on, on Question Period to the Alberta Finance Minister try to talk about this too, you know, there were more questions at the end of the interview than there were answers. And it's, you know, it's really puzzling from a political comms perspective to, to initiate a major debate on an issue like this with seemingly uh, no clear path as to where you want to go and where you want to land. Like, it's, it's uh, unclear uh, what will happen for pensioners in terms of what their benefits will be. There's, you know, a, a bunch of different storylines being rolled out there. 
what the process is for how you know whether this will happen or not is there going to be a referendum is there not you know uh like there are clear answers on on some very fundamental things and i think just from a you know a political practitioner point of view this seems like it's half-baked like you want to you want to know where you're driving the bus you want to know what uh the standard is you're trying you should be trying to define what the question is is uh, as as clearly as you possibly can and what the process is going to be as clearly as you possibly can and and trying to steer the population towards the desired outcome that you have it's not clear to me what it is and uh, and the only thing i can come back to is i think different people in that government have different ideas as to what this is and what the outcome should be and and uh, some of them sound like they're kind of half-heartedly trying to to drive it towards uh, an independent pension plan, others enthusiastically driving it towards there, others who seem like they're trying to uh, to divert it off into a, a spur line and, and have it just go away. And and they're all in the same government. And so I think it's it's just destined for, uh, a, a, you know, to be an ongoing political problem for the government as long as it, they're that divided internally and, it, and that unclear in terms of what the actual policy is. And and what the path towards getting a, an answer one way or the other on it is. Jordan, why is she doing this? Uh, it's, this is a great question. And I think, you know, I was, uh, I was struck this week by how Polyev described her, her push on this file as being just another kind of tactical fight with Ottawa. But like she doesn't describe it that way and she's not actually treating it that way. If you look at what she's doing, like I, I think she's earnest about it. You know, I think this is something that she really wants to do. Um, and, and she's, you know, pursuing it in a kind of haphazard way. That is really the only thing that makes sense because she's managed to isolate herself completely. Uh, there are, there are really no uh, political allies for her outside of Alberta on this issue at all. She's united, she's united Trudeau and Polyev and Ford and like, you know, all joining hands around the idea that uh, Alberta doesn't get to raid half of the CPP funds. And I, and I think that um, the only real explanation would be that she actually genuinely thinks it's a good policy. And, and I, you know, there were two other things that kind of struck me this week is really interesting. So now the Alberta government has is spending like $7 million on this advertising campaign around the consultation, but it's really, it's quite a push around the plan. And the numbers don't seem to be moving. It's still two thirds against in the province. And it strikes me that they're also, they're not really making the case that there's anything wrong with the CPP currently. And so people are just not feeling like they want to give up what they know and what is guaranteed to them for this plan that uh, has vastly variable potential benefits for them. And as a, you know, as the column accurately reflected that they actually haven't seen the real blueprint on. So I, I think, you know, as Corey has touched on, there's some, there's some stuff tactically that doesn't really make any sense in terms of how they're approaching it. And then the last little piece, and I think it was, um, I think it was on West of Center, they were talking about this a little bit too, which is, what are they going to do? Like, there, there's also all sorts of other threads that are linked to this that are politically challenging and maybe problematic. And and so, for example, what are they going to do about pension investments? Are they going to, is, would an Alberta pension plan invest preferentially in oil and gas, even if that's not a smart move in terms of the returns? Do people want that? Like, these are some really thorny kind of political public Well, they talked about questions. the Quebec model in that way a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. That, but, that's clearly part of it. That's yeah, part of the part project's of always floated that AIMCO would do it and that they would interfere sure. politically. Um, and and so, I mean, that's like, I think that that's, that's sort of maybe an increasingly unfavorable thing when most retirees look at their, their own portfolios that are relying on those things that aren't always so profitable anymore. So, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that doesn't really tick the box in terms of what you would be doing if you were doing this as a ploy or a political push. Um, so that leaves us with earnestness, which uh, is not great. Yeah, I mean, presumably, presumably, it would have been the pension fund that put the billion dollars into Keystone XL. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah right? I, I think I think that's kind of what you see. But I, I know you, uh, Scott, will want to get in on this. But but just on on that point, like one of the challenges with uh, the economy in Alberta 
like many of the economies in the West, it's, it's, it's very cyclical based on resource pricing. And you'll see, you know, booms and busts. And, you know, there's a, there's a dynamic in the economy in Alberta where you'll see an energy industry downturn you know, in, in global energy prices, and you'll see a lot of people lose their job. And now, if, if that's what they're proposing, it's, you're going to lose your job and you might lose, you know, a, a big chunk of the value of your pension at the same time. Like, this is a way to, to further destabilize an economy that I think needs to be actually moving in the other direction, trying to find points of stability. You might actually want to have a bit of a counter cyclical uh, investment uh, approach around this where you're trying to diversify, uh, diversify away from the things that, that, the your you know domestic economy is already over invested in in terms of the the labor force etc so i don't know i just think there's a lot of really thorny questions that are going to keep coming to the fore here that uh that they're once again clear as mud on scott you know first of all i feel very strongly about the issue in the sense that i believe in the cpp but politically i'm actually worried this thing's going to collapse too quickly because I cannot think of a ballot question that one could construct that is more likely to be answered in Justin Trudeau's favor than who do you want negotiating with Alberta about your share of the CPP, Pierre Polyev or Justin Trudeau? Um, yeah, well, I'm counting on the raccoons. I'm counting on the raccoons to sustain this debate, and despite all objective, political, rational argument uh, that she'll just Smith will just stick with this thing, uh, they'll complete this horseshit uh, consultation, uh, which begins on a, a, pr a premise that isn't faulty. It's a, it begins on a premise that's a lie, and um, and it's you know, working hard to try to shift people in a, a preformed way, but it's not, not working. Um, so I'm counting on her to sustain all of that and to take a referendum to people so that, you know, um, so that the federal government could try to position themselves on it. And for that matter, that there's also, there's the broader national consensus from the other premiers and so forth. But, you know, I, I, I want to say, and we'll see if that happens. Um, if there's anybody that's invulnerable, um, to objective political realities, it's it's uh, premier raccoons. Uh, so we'll see. But I, I do think, like, there's a bunch of things about this that drive me crazy, and I feel very, very strongly. And obviously the absurdity that Bell points out in his column, you know, listen, um, I want you to, you're in a nice apartment that you like and that you've had for 60 years, I'd like you to throw a chair out the window and then jump from the window. Now, but I'm not going to tell you whether there's clear water or concrete below, but I'd like you to take the trip with me. No fucking thanks. Okay. And um, so, but he also makes a point, which I think is important, that the CPP is an understood property. Because if you look at what the Alberta government is trying to do now in terms of this debate, what they're pushing back on is, well, what's the CPP? All the CPP has done is, is say that our idea is bad. What's their idea? It's like, what do you mean, what's their idea? Their fucking idea is the idea that works. It's worked for 60 years. Kiss my ass. They don't need to make an argument. The rest of the premiers and the federal government don't need to make an argument. It's a proven, reliable thing. People don't even think about their pension now. They know that the CPP is is there and that it's fully funded and it will be there for decades. So I want to say one more thing, though, and this is a, I, I think this is really, really important. It's, it's really like it's almost ground zero in where our politics in the Western world have gone for 25 years. And I, by that, I mean, how many institutions, collective institutions, national institutions, institutions of government, things that those uniting institutions that we used to take for granted that haven't either demonstrated that they don't work the way they're supposed to, the way they used to or the way we wish them to, or and or haven't been absolutely dismantled by rabid bear fang populist negative horseshit and between those two factors governments not you know sustaining a consensus because they've underfunded something or executed badly and this crazy bullshit anti-truth sort of right-wing populism that's corroding all of these institutions we're left with very little this is a national institution that works that ticks along and works it's used as a model around the world it's a national institution that works so you need to fight this fight and win this fight 
because there aren't many stories that end with, and then people decided that the institution served them well and it was applauded. And fuck, man, we could use a win on that side of the board. I, I, I really agree. I really agree with that. Like, I think there's something there around institutions, but like, I, I will take issue with it. You know, it's sort of right wing populism tearing out institutions. I think you're seeing it on all sides right now. And, uh, it, you know, but trying to find points where things are working is good and trying to find, uh, you know, ways of reforming things. And, you know, we can speak about the Bank of Canada and, and institutions like that that increase public confidence in them as opposed to uh, simply say, hey, stupid people, stop talking. Uh, everything's fine. And like, you know, we experienced a bunch of versions of that during the pandemic and like both both versions of that are are corrosive. But just one last thought around the politics of all of this. There are so many issues in which the premiers uh, across the country would be with uh, Alberta, uh, whether around issues relating to provincial jurisdiction. You saw one on the Supreme Court reference. Uh, you've seen them, uh, you know, others around resource development and and jurisdictional creep on the part of the federal government. There is a lot of common ground there where you would see uh, provinces like B.C. under the NDP or uh, and uh, other conservative provinces, you know, be it the SAS party or, or, or the Ford government here in Ontario, where they'll come together and be very, would be very supportive uh, around some of the things that, that are, are real issues in Alberta and real issues for the Smith government. This is just one that turns everyone against them and isolates them. And so I just don't see uh, the strategy in terms of doing that. Like, this is one they're probably not going to be successful in the end, in my view. And it's going to distance them and, and isolate them. And I just don't, I don't get it. I don't get. And the last thing I would add is that I think we should watch the timelines on this, because if you look at the timelines that, the, uh, that Smith is putting on consultation, putting on potential referendum, all of these are very far in the future, and it really does suggest that the concept of this is much better than any potential execution, and that there are folks inside who know that. Right. <clears throat> You've heard me raise one of my hobby horses, long-term care, on the podcast before. But another aspect of our healthcare system we tend not to discuss is palliative care. Palliative care gives people comfort, dignity, and control when they're facing a serious illness. It's about improving quality of life for people and their loved ones while they're on their journey, no matter where it takes them. On October 25th, our sponsor, the Canadian Cancer Society, released a new report on the state of palliative care in Canada. The report found that we have just over half of the hospice beds we ought to in this country, and we lack the workforce we need to offer the compassionate, person-centered care people expect. But it also shows the progress being made and where we need to keep going from here. The Canadian Cancer Society believes everyone in Canada should have access to affordable, culturally safer, high-quality palliative care, no matter where you live or where you choose to receive care. To learn more, go to www.cancer.ca slash palliative care. Okay, so let's quickly move to our third topic which is the Ontario NDP. Jesus, mother of pearl, what a thing this has been to watch. Um, while the opposition should be reveling in the daily shit spraying over the government from the green belt, they are instead tearing themselves apart over Israel and Gaza. Marat Stiles' support for Israel's right to defend itself from terror attacks has come under attack from sitting members. There's riding associations calling for her to step down and MPPs refusing to comment on such demands, uh, leaving her swinging out there in the wind. Her leadership appears to be under severe duress just a year after she was acclaimed to the job. Jordan, I have to ask you, just how badly do New Democrats want to beat Doug Ford? Yeah, wow, it's a good question. It's just been a brutal two weeks for the Ontario NDP. And, and I think uh, on a few levels, right, you know, we can we can talk about the the initial issue management of of the of the statement that Sarah Jama made, where I think that there were a lot of errors and hopefully lessons learned by Marit's team. But uh, maybe first among them is don't issue a public demand uh, for a retraction, unless you know what the answer is going to be, you get it. You arrange that ahead of time, uh, and then and then 
go public on that type of thing. So I think that there were things in the initial stages of it that that absolutely made it a lot worse. Uh, dragging it out made it a lot worse. Um, and now, yeah, now there's a real problem because it it seems that, that, you know, there is a segment of folks within the Ontario NDP who are more interested in talking to themselves than talking to Ontarians. And that's a real problem. Um, and I can say that over the last two weeks, uh, that the statement and the discussions that have been happening, and I don't at all want to minimize people's feelings uh, and intensity around the issue of what is happening in Gaza. That is real and, and and that is legitimate. But this conversation has saved not a single life in Gaza, but the Ontario NDP is far further from beating Doug Ford and forming government than it ever has been thanks to this internal nonsense. And I think when I take a step back and I look at what's going on, um, I think one of the challenges and one of the conversations that needs to happen in the party as well is what is... Like, what is the relationship of the Ontario NDP to activists and activism? Because often the party does recruit activists, community activists to run as candidates. And activism is really important work. It's very important for public life. It's an important form of civic engagement. But it's not always a direct translation into elected life. It's these a are very really different very, thing. We've talked about this, very, we've ta we've talked about this with Gilbo in the past. Yeah, these right? are hugely different things. And, and I think that uh, sometimes when parties are not honest with candidates and potential candidates about what that change is like, uh, then you run into these situations where I think like we could, we could maybe actually look at what happened uh, between JAMA and Styles and say that like that was, it, it might've been inevitable, if not this, then something else, because that fit was, was never really clearly, openly and honestly discussed between them. Um, that there was no like internal infrastructure to solve that problem in in a positive way. There was just nothing there to ground it on, um, and that this was really a likely outcome in the end. And so I think that there's a lot of reflection that the party has to do about the fact that a political party is just never going to be the avant-garde of activism. That's not its job. Its purpose is to get elected. And if, and if you are involved or joining a political party because you want it to be the cutting edge of political activism, you're going to be disappointed because that's not what it's about. Doesn't mean that it's not important, but it's just a whole other tool in the toolbox. And so I think that I'm hopeful that if uh, there is something to come out of this, uh, you know, obviously there's, there's many, many layers to this and, and certainly issues around anti-black racism and things like that also have to be dealt with and discussed honestly within the party. But this is also a piece of it. And I think that the Ontario NDP figuring out what its relationship is to those activist communities is a really important conversation to have. Um, and I and I hope that they're going to have it because this is incredibly damaging. Well, Scott, bingo on that. Yeah, go, go ahead, Scott. I guess I, I would just say, you know, Sarah Gemma, Jill Andrew, there are other examples. Um, and I'm not trying to main, mansplain here, in all honesty. Just here's a fact. And a fact is that you're elected because you had the NDP banner. You had a party banner. Um, and, and, and you w wouldn't have been elected if you'd run as an independent. And so there's a stated bargain there. And, and, it, and it ought to be clear. And that is that you're going to be trying to work as a team. And, and you are obviously trying to work to as a team to electoral success. Now, you know, that's that's a greater challenge that sort of, you know, to, to misquote uh, our friend Jeff Simpson, you know, it's the it's the, the you know, the, the discipline of unpower has always been a challenge for the NDP. Right. Um, because it isn't like people can say, well, later, like when the conservatives are confronted with abortion, you get a leader who will say, guys, this is not our fight. This is not going to turn the next election. It will divide us and demonstrate that we're not ready for prime time. Back in the days, meets late constitutional issues. Sometimes that would divide liberals and be like, "Fuck, the next election isn't going to be about distinct society." But we're we're taking ourselves out of the running with this, right? So parties are confronted with this, but the brokerage parties, because fundamentally they're created and exist for the stated purpose of of winning elections, are better able often to manage that. It's harder for the NDP because there is this activist streak. There is this streak that. No, we're going to be the conscience of legislatures and the House of Commons and all that sort of stuff. It's it's harder, and they and but it comes down to like, are you in the 
are you in the business of I am rightism or are you in the business of winism, right? And like, which is it? And so I just think that when you see people saying, you know what, I, I'm sorry, but I am not going to compromise my right to say exactly what I want to say because I feel I have that right. I will not compromise it. I will not condition it. I will not qualify in any way, shape or form. And to do so is, is, is horrifying. It's like, but you are on a team. And so then don't, then that's fine. But here's part of the bar. Then say, all right, I'm, I'm breaking from the consensus and I'm unwilling to compromise citizen independent and see if you win the next election. Um, and I just don't think people make that trade-off. And I think that sometimes, and we've seen it with the liberals, we've seen it with the federal liberals under Trudeau. Sometimes I think to, to the point that, that Jordan makes, it's really important. Like you have to almost advise people in advance to saying, listen, we really want you and your talent, your energy and your network, but understand you're going to sometimes have to come to work and say, fuck, I can't believe I got to carry that pail of water. But what are they even in the job for, Corey? I mean, like, what do they think they're yeah. doing? If you run provincially, for the legislature, you're not running assuming that you're going to be influential in the middle fucking east. Okay? You're running yeah. provincially because you hope to beat Doug Ford and put more money into long-term care or some fucking thing, whatever it is. So where is that thinking? Like, what are they doing? Well, they're, it's an activist's thinking. And, and they're not thinking, like, activists aren't looking to actually make decisions and take responsibility for things. They're looking to howl at the moon on one issue or another. And, uh, you know, whether it's virtue signaling on social media or, or you know, or, you know, railing against this injustice or that injustice with no, you know, specific plan to actually rectify the situation and often at things that are, are well, well beyond anyone's control. And, and that's what you're seeing there. Like, I, I, you know, I looked at uh, Sarah Gemma's oppo file when she uh, was announced as the candidate for the NDP in that riding. And uh, uh, was you know rubbing my hands together with glee as to how this was going to go because it was clear from the very first day they selected her as the candidate. When you looked at the things that she'd done and said in the past, that this is some version of this was going to play itself out. Uh, this is somebody who is uncompromising, who has never had any substantive involvement in electoral politics or within a party structure, and uh, whose public profile was defined by saying highly inflammatory things, including on this subject matter. Like the fact that she's way out on a limb on this stuff is, is not a surprise when you look at her past statements. Um, and that her knowledge base around, you know, how politics works was very low. And, and you saw it, you know, throughout this process, like, you know, uh, announces that she's going to sue the premier for a statement he made in the legislature. Well, you know, uh, those are, are those uh, come with parliamentary immunity. You know, mm. you can't sue on that. Uh, uh, you know, but the, this is this is what activists do. And like, I think Jordan hit the nail squarely on the head. Like, you know, you gotta you gotta have the discipline of power as a leadership to uh, actually remove these people as candidates before they're on the ballot. You know, to, in the nomination process, say, you know what, you're not a good fit for running. And you got to find people who are a better fit. Like, in, she's in Hamilton Center. Like, who, who would be good in Hamilton Center? Get somebody who's a, a steelworkers union member. Get somebody who's, who's closer to the community and the economy of the community and who's going to buttress you against uh, the ongoing uh, attack from the right in terms of trying to steal your, you know, your blue-collar working-class union members. Like, that's the obvious thing to do politically there. But instead, they get somebody who is a loudmouth activist radical on a range of things that don't even touch on provincial jurisdiction and policy. Uh, so, you know, you choose dumb candidates and elect them into your caucus, you're going to get bad results. And yeah, just want it's been an ongoing problem for the NDP in Ontario. It, I think it's, it's what throttled uh, uh, the uh, electoral drive in 2018 by Horvath. I think that's what put a ceiling on her that was well below where she needed to be in order to to uh, to to actually be viable to win. And uh, and they haven't learned a lesson. Like they still haven't learned the lesson. And in throwing her out, uh, Merritt Stiles' mouth was full of marbles. Like she didn't actually say why she was throwing her out. She's like, well, she, you know. Uh, we became frustrated with her in various ways. Oh, well, can you name one? Uh, well, just in various ways, right? Like she, 
It was a garbled message around that. So she didn't even create a teachable moment for the rest of her caucus as to what's going to keep you in the caucus and what's going to have you removed. And you have to do that too. So, you know, I'd say F minus for Merritt Stiles and the, and the provincial NDP in Ontario because they keep making the same mistake with the same predictable outcome. And as long as they keep doing that, well, it's going to be good news for me and Doug Ford. I'll tell you that. All right. We only have a couple of minutes left, Jordan. Yeah, I was just going to maybe wrap to say, I think, I think, you know, Mara unquestionably made the right decision at the end of the day in terms of, of expelling Sarah Jammer from the caucus. I think that it's a moment for her and her leadership where hopefully it's going to be able to, to rally caucus around the goal again of forming government. This is like a clarifying moment, I think for them as a team that they haven't had before. And this is a very painful way to get it, but this is the moment where folks are going to kind of need to decide if they're in or out of the project of, of trying to replace Doug Ford in government. And so I think that, well, uh, it is unquestionable that there has been a lot of damage done uh, over the last two weeks, there is uh, potentially something here that Marit can can take and bring people together for it, and particularly because she didn't come up through a leadership race. This has not really been stress tested internally before. And so that has made this doubly challenging. And so now, uh, you know, they are they have been to the wars a little bit together on this once they get to the other side of it, and hopefully that will serve her well in the future. But I, I want to be really clear, like, I don't think I don't think Sarah Jam is stupid. I don't think I don't think that at all. I think that this is somebody who was not really clearly told what the job entailed. And that is a real big problem. And so I'll be interested to see what the party does as they move ahead, as they look at candidate search, as they look at working with their riding associations. How do they how do they negotiate that uh, with their members who are also activists? Like, what is the hat that people are bringing to those party interactions? And, and how are you going to try to shift that culture internally? I think that's the question on a go-forward basis for Mara and her team. Yeah, sure seems like that's consensus around this group. Okay, Mr. Pinsent. Ladies and gentlemen, please return to your seats. The hey yous are about to begin. All right, Scott, you got a hey you? My hey used to Sean Fraser. We've talked about him a lot. He's been Johnny on the spots ever since the cabinet shuffle in uh, July as the government has decided that it's going to pay attention to the housing file. It's using the housing accelerator fund to generate news and create change. And last week he used this phrase, legalize housing, and has caused all kinds of uproar and so forth. Good on you, man. Good on you. Like, it's a little bit of like, take take a hold of the issue, a little bit of branding, a little bit of communication savvy. It's just sort of like, oh, okay, so I got something now people are arguing about. Nothing better than a little bit of conflict and controversy to get people actually noticing. Uh, I just think that it's great. It gives him uh, standing in the debates on a, on a municipal level of saying, you know what, actually, we want you to do certain things, don't want you to do other things. We're going to use the big, big federal checkbook to try to influence that. I just thought he's brought a sharp focus on that stuff. Housing Accelerator Fund, I've always hated the name, but legalized housing, uh, it's really, it uh, concentrates focus. So uh, guys, expected to be a great communicator. He's been a great communicator. Keep on trucking. All right, Jordan. So uh, my hey you this week is going out to the federal liberals, but maybe not in the way that one would expect. It's about Pierre Polyev and the vaccine mandates. So we saw him taking another high profile swing at the issue last week with a private member's bill on banning vaccine mandates that went to a completely expected and inevitable defeat in the House. But, you know, Polyev was out there doing his thing, speaking against mandates um, you know, David Coletto had some interesting numbers out over the weekend about why he might be doing that. So obviously to solidify his base, but Coletto made a, I think, an interesting argument about a more What's mainstream... What's the argument? He's a big fan of polio? Yeah. No, he's not. No, no. And oh. I, I don't think David's work is interesting on this, but he's arguing, <laughs> he's arguing that there's a, a larger... Little ringworm. Little ringworm would shake things up. <laughs> I don't know what your vaccination schedule is like, Scott, but... <laughs> but Plato's arguing that there's maybe like a broader base of Canadians who are reluctantly vaccinated and maybe Paul is courting that. And it's really interesting. You should go read it, but I don't believe him. I don't believe him at all. I think this is still a 90-10 fight. 
among the public and some might hate you is to the liberals i saw you know you guys did some nasty tweets about it you had trudeau out you had a couple folks out paid advertisement pierre polyev just proved that he has not left this fight behind he has not left this unbalanced 90 10 split fight behind this fight where he went out and he stood with the trucker convoy occupation, where he stood with all of these people that are polarizing at a time that nobody wants to remember. And you guys have got to put money behind it. If you want to litigate the case that he is extreme, you need to pay to do it. And that's my hate. God love you. From your lips to God's ears. Uh, Corey. Yeah, I'm going to do a hey you to all the provincial finance ministers. Uh, I I think there's going to be a lot of meetings. There will be a lot of meetings around the CPP stuff that we talked about earlier. But my hey you is to add another item to the agenda. Uh, I think, you know, building off what Scott said about not tearing down institutions, uh, but trying to be constructive around that stuff. I think they should make some space on that agenda uh, and bring in some, some folks uh, who are experts in the area with differing opinions around what a target rate for the Bank of Canada should be. And they should try to provide some constructive feedback to the Bank of Canada and the federal government, because it's pretty clear to me that, that Freeland isn't going to do this on her own or willingly. Uh, and to uh, try to have a, a national debate around that as well at the same time, because I think there's some important linkages there. Uh, around confidence in financial institutions and the, and the overall economic direction of the country. I personally believe the Bank of Canada is getting it wrong right now. And I think not just in terms of substance, but in terms of not providing a, uh, a public rationale for a target rate that hasn't changed in a long time, but which over time has been a lot of different numbers, you know, from 6% to 4% to now 2 What's magic in that 2% number? Let's have a debate and conversation around that while we're talking about CPP. And let's put some constructive ideas on the table uh, for, for consideration as, as we, we move through this process. Because I think that would help build up an institution as opposed to just sort of sniping at it from the sidelines. You're here. Everyone can dunk if the rim is set at seven foot. <laughs> I'm not with yeah. you. No, if the no. rate's tough, then let's. Or if the target's tough, let's change it. Well, if the if the target is set by uh, arbitrarily, and when sort of inflationary pressures beyond our border are greater than what that target rate is, then you're just punishing Canadians. Yeah, I'll take uh, that for fight. no purpose. For right. no purpose. I'm yeah. a cereal bowl full of stagflation. Thanks. Scott's no. not. Scott's not thinking with his political head right now. No, I'm anyway. Dr. Nair on this. Yeah. Uh, my hey you goes out to uh, Paul Calandra in Ontario, a.k.a. The Wolf. In the great movie Pulp Fiction, Samuel L. Jackson and John Travolta made a bit of a mess in a car. They shot a guy's head off, and it was a very messy scene. And they didn't know what to do, so they called Harvey Keitel, The Wolf, to come up and clean up this mess. So I have this vision of Paul Calandra at home going through over the weekend, going through thousands and thousands of ministerial zoning orders, trying to figure out what to do and where to put them and how to kill all of them. So I just say to you, Paul Calandra, a.k.a. the wolf, pretty pleased with sugar on it. Clean up that fucking mess. <laughs> Get some thick blankets, lay them in the back seat, soak up the blood. <laughs> That's what Mara right. should be doing today. Everybody should tune in. It's going to be fun. <laughs> well. Start a GoFundMe page to get, get a couple of big bottles of bleach over there for him, too. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. All right. I'd like to thank our presenting sponsor, TELUS, our sponsors, CN Rail, and the Canadian Cancer Society. I'd like to thank the three of you for joining me today. So much fun. And thank you, everybody who watched or listened. We'll see you next week with more of The Curse of Politics. Take care of yourselves.